Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. In this week's episode, we try something a little bit different. We share a webinar where I was joined by Larry Swedro, a speaker, author, and researcher of all things economics. In addition to some observation and commentary, we field questions real-time from the audience. We cover an array of topics, ranging from the information that's available to us in prices as well as talk about some of the ways to predict and measure inflation in a more objective way. Most importantly, we talk about important paradigm shifts investors should be considering today in light of the current environment to protect and preserve their purchasing power going forward. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Larry Swedro of Buckingham. All right, Larry, I think it's time to kick this off. So let me just start by welcoming everyone to this webinar brought to you by DeLap. You obviously know who we are, but uh, been around here for 90 or so years. My name is Jared Siegel. I lead our wealth advisory practice. And joining me today is Larry Swedro. Throughout today's call, we've prepared some content to review with you. The big pillars will be inflation, national debt, and the possibility for some tax changes and kind of thinking through all the different decisions that you have have to make as it pertains to preserving and protecting your wealth. This is designed to be interactive. So uh, throughout today's presentation, we fielded some questions ahead of time. So we've got a great lineup of questions here. So let me just fire it up again with introducing Larry Swedro. So Larry is an economic researcher, speaker, and author. He's the author of actually eight different books. I think I've read four of them, Larry. So I, I still got to knock out the other four. He is a, uh, the chief research officer at uh, Buckingham, which is uh, a strategic partner to our wealth advisory practice. He's a, a regular speaker on shows like on NBC, CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg Personal Finance, brings four and a half decades of experience and holds an MBA in finance and investment from NYU. So without further ado, let's welcome Larry. Thanks, Jared. I actually have a bit more reading since I've either authored or co-authored authored 18 books. And I have a new one I'm working on right now, which is your essential guide to sustainable investing. So if your clients are interested and we could have time, we could talk a little bit about sustainable investing. That book should be out early next year. And Jared asked me to provide some maybe 15 minutes of commentary on the outlook for the economy and markets a bit, and then we'll take it with questions from there. So we really have a lot of good news on the economy. Before I give you the good news, I, I want to preface this by saying that the economy 
the status of the economy is already known and markets are forward looking. So usually the market is anticipating the economic news and markets don't go up just because news is good. They only go up if news is better than expected. And if the news is good, but not as good as expected, markets could go down. So you have to be really careful. Even if you could forecast the economy well, that doesn't necessarily tell you what the, the markets are going to do. It's only unexpected events that matter. As I said, we have a lot of good news highlighted by the fact that as of now, we have 75% of the public basically has immunity to the COVID, either through vaccination or they have the disease. That number was expected to reach 80% by the end of June, and that's really allowing the economy to normalize in a rapid fashion. In fact, the GMP grew at 6.5% roughly in the, uh, or we expect the second quarter to be at 6.5%. And the third quarter, the people I talked to think even a 10% rate of growth with all the stimulus and we'll talk a bit about that, we could hit 10% growth in the third quarter. Amazing, I think this will probably surprise probably everybody on this call, but if you go back two years and draw a trend line on retail sales, we have already above that long-term trend line. Also, on the employment front, 44% of all employers already stating that they're finding it difficult to hire staff. There's shortages. We also have the highest number of unfilled jobs ever. So that's an issue. We have wages are going up and likely to go up at a pretty rapid pace. And you're seeing it because of the demand for skilled labor. And if Amazon and Costco are raising their wages, then the people who have to compete for that same lower skilled workforce, they have to raise wages and it pushes everybody up the scale. B of A, for example, just announced they're targeting a $25 an hour minimum wage. Those are things that are all, in effect, good for the economy, although they may not necessarily be good for markets because at some point that could put pressure on corporate profit margins. I'm going to touch a little bit about that as well. All of this good news is happening while we still have massive fiscal and monetary stimulus of a scale we have never seen before, which goes against all economic theory. You want to apply big stimulus when you have a shortfall like we did in 2020 and maybe even early uh, this year. But once you are out of that, you want to be taking the punch bowl away from the party. This fiscal spending is really also directed directly at the people most likely to have a high marginal propensity to spend, so lower income. So that's going to be very stimulatory in terms of spending. Home prices are rising rapidly. Commodity prices are soaring. And this is also at the same time that consumer balance sheets, this may shock people, but because of the sharp drop in spending that we had in 2020, 
and people got nervous about spending as well, trying to restore their balance sheets. Consumer balance sheets are the strongest they have ever been in history, which means we have a large pent-up demand and capacity to spend at the same time. Now, this is being reflected in the markets because earnings per share are expected now to be up 80% or so this year, and about 70% of companies are beating even these optimistic estimates. This is not at all uncommon coming out of recessions because profit margins tend to widen as businesses tend to be cautious early. They keep their spending, for example, on travel and capital expenditures down until they actually see the profits arising. They learn to become more efficient as well. And those savings generate high profit margins. But as you grow, then And if you start to get these labor shortages, margins can get squeezed. And that would likely mean at future points, while the economy might be doing well, corporate profits and their margins might not do as well, say, late 22 or 23. There are some other things I want to touch on again briefly, so we have plenty of time for questions. One, I think... The outlook for the dollar is likely one of weakness unless we get some unexpected shocks because we have massive twin deficits that matter the most. One is massive trade deficits. We already had a big one before the crisis. Now we're growing much faster than the rest of the world because we got inoculated much sooner. So we're rebounding and we put in much more fiscal and monetary stimulus. That's causing our imports to swell much more than our exports, which are held back by slower growth overseas. And you also, at the same time, have a massive budget deficit. So I think one of the likely scenarios is we're going to see a weaker dollar, which will provide a tailwind for foreign assets as well. There's also this likelihood of these massive deficits does create at least the potential for central banks around the world to dump dollars as they did in late 2018. And that really created a problem for the markets and could put upward pressure on interest rates. While my crystal ball is, as always, cloudy, I always think in probabilities, not what will happen. I think you cannot ignore even that the dollar could be used as a weapon or the value of the dollar for political reasons. For example, we got into a problem with China. They could start dumping dollars and have an impact there, which would create problems for the U.S. Next point I want to touch on is on taxes. It's always been said that there are only two short things, which are death and taxes. I think now as much as I'm reluctant to make forecasts saying anything is certain. But in this case, I think we now have a third certainty beside death and taxes, and that is that tax rates are going up and likely significantly, regardless of who is in power, which party. And that's because we have a very serious problem. Our, our budget deficits, for the, with the sole exception of the period during World War II, when we had to finance that war, we are now 
well over plus the line of 100% of debt to GDP, where the economic research is very clear. Three studies, different ones have found that once you get around that 100% level, you start to have a negative impact on economic growth because people don't want to lend you money anymore. They may charge a higher interest rate, for example. And people start to worry, our own citizens, for example, start to worry, well, got these massive deficits. The government won't be there to provide that social security that they promised because they can't make those payments. And so people start to save more. And that acts like a drag. You might think of Japan, which has been in a really no growth mode for like 20 years. Their debt to GDP ratio is 270% or something like that now. And they have a serious problem partly because of that. So I think it's almost certain we're going to see increases in taxes sharply. We, there's no such thing as a deficit hawk anymore. We had both Republican presidents, Bush and Trump, blow up the budgets. We were starting from a very low debt to GDP ratio in 2000 in the 20s, I think, or maybe 30. Then Bush blew it up. Obama made it worse. Trump made it worse. And now we're seeing massive stimulus despite the fact that the economy is already fully recovered. We're actually above trend line. And there are now more job openings than there are unemployed. It's shocking to see that we're defying all economic logic here with these programs being proposed. Turning to the rest of the world, they are a little bit behind us, but now they're getting vaccinated, ramping up quickly. We expect that you should see faster economic growth there, but not as quick as the U.S. So we're likely to see maybe 6% GNP growth for them in 2021 and about 4% in 2022, where we're going to be faster than that. So I think, try to sum up, and I'll, and I'll touch on a few other quick points. I think there are three possible scenarios here that we should think about, and that's the right way to think about it, because we don't know what will happen. And anyone who tells you that they do know what will happen, you should run, because they're a legend in their own mind. There are no great forecasters of the market. One outlook is that the Fed gets it right. So we end up through this with, say, two, two and a half percent growth and two percent or so inflation. And they're able to slow the inflationary pressures at just the right pace. Second scenario is we end up looking like Japan because of the big budget deficits. And that is a poor outlook but low growth and deflationary pressures for the reasons I gave as people start to ramp up spent, uh, savings. And the third one is we end up looking more like Greece uh, with big budget deficits, and then the rest of the world stops having faith in the dollar, and they pull their assets out, and then you get high interest rates, stagflation, real problems for the economy. That's the worst of those outcomes. I don't know that I could put odds on that. I like to think about these things naively, and I try to 
think about building portfolios that can withstand any of those three environments. All right, last thing I'll touch on is outlook for interest rates. So if you think long term, we have generally seen about a 50 basis point premium over, in, over inflation in for, for short-term treasury bills. So if the Fed is targeting 2% and is able to get there, we would expect the T-bill rate to be 2.5%. Historically, we've had about a 2% premium for long-term bonds over that T-bill rate. That gets you a 4.5% 10-year yield or 30-year yield. That's incompatible with Biden's budget, which is forecasting much lower long-term interest rates, which means they're almost certainly dramatically understating the deficit problems. Not unusual for politicians to understate those problems. I don't see how you can get the economic growth of 2% and inflation of 2% and have interest rates at say two and a half, which is what they are projecting. That just doesn't make economic sense. So we're gonna continue to see this massive deficit problem. And you're talking if interest rates jump, just say 3%, on our 20 trillion plus debt, that's 600 billion a year more. That's three to 4% more debt and than Biden is already projecting and they're projecting large deficits. It's clearly not sustainable. And therefore, that's why I think tax rates are going up and people should be planning around that. And it has implications for economic growth. And we'll have to see what happens. So I'll stop my comments there so we have plenty of time for questions. Excellent. Uh, yeah, just uh, appreciate that overview and some of the commentary there, Larry. Great way to kind of prime the pump. So again, just a reminder to today's audience that uh, you can use the Q&A feature to submit some questions. So we're starting to have a couple show up here. But you know, Larry, sometimes in life, it's more about asking the right questions than coming up with the right answers. And so I guess in light of all of the things that you talked about, some good news and some terrifying news, the questions that we all end up asking ourselves is what's the right move for our families? So I guess in the spirit of coming up with the right questions, what are some of the right questions that people should be considering right now? You know, we talked about inflation and you talked a little bit about how we can look at it, measure it objectively. I know that your your colleague and friend, Gene Fama, Nobel laureate uh, of the efficient markets theory would would talk to you about all the actionable insight that's available to you in terms of just looking at the price. And so I guess, how's the market thinking about inflation right now? If if all of us are smarter than one of us, how's the market pricing inflation in currently? Well, fortunately, we do have at least one good metric that everyone can look at that gives you at least a proxy. It's not a perfect picture of what the market thinks about inflation, but it's a little complex. I'll keep it simple here. Anyone can go to Bloomberg.com and they have a page on treasury rates. And so you could look at the 10-year nominal yield. Today, that's about 1.6%. Let me just pull that up here one second, and I'll tell you what the 10-year tips or treasury inflation protected securities, that's minus about 90 basis points. So if we take 160 and subtract from that a negative 90, 
you get two and a half percent. That's telling you roughly the market is expecting inflation of two and a half percent a year over the next 10 years. So it's not expecting a high rate of inflation. That reflects a consensus forecast of the market. That means there may be some people who think it'll be four and some people will think we look like Japan for the reasons I mentioned, but the consensus is there. Another way you could think about this is I like to look at the what and every one of your listeners can go there as well. The Philadelphia Federal Reserve puts out a quarterly forecast, a survey of uh, leading economists around the country. I think they use 60 of the economists from the leading investment banks and banks. Now, they are clearly influencers, right? They write these papers and forecasts. So I think it's a good way if you take a consensus of 60 of the top economists and they're influencing other people, you know, and they're forecasting in number that's in that similar two and a half. I think their forecast is like 2.3 or something last time I had checked. So they're not expecting that. But again, you should always think of that as a mean of a wide potential dispersion of outcomes. So maybe we end up with four or five or six percent inflation, or maybe it's only one percent. No way to know. And you should build a portfolio that could survive any of those environments. Larry, one of the things that you hinted at is we did see commodity prices be significantly disrupted. And so here in the Northwest, there's a, a lumber heritage. Many of our clients are, are developers and home builders. So that's catching everyone's eye. Materials, you know, metals have gone up significantly. Now I'm hearing about chip shortages, which has Im- impacted car production. I was hearing that used car sales are now up 20 to 30% in some markets. And so how does the market process historically commodity disruptions that, that might be commodity specific? And I guess what role does commodities, if any, play in, in how we should protect ourselves in our long-term purchasing power? This is an interesting question. First of all, if you know there's a shortage and you're reading in the paper, it's too late to act on it because the smart guys at Goldman Sachs and Renaissance Technology and all the big hedge funds and money managers, the pros who spend every waking hour thinking about these things, they're already traded on that news. It's the way to think about this stuff, and this is true of any economic forecast at all, or someone gives you 10 good reasons to buy a stock, you should ignore it always because that person or you know is making a mistake of confusing what is called information with value-relevant information. In the equity markets, just like betting on sports, knowing, for example, let's say last year, the Kansas City Chiefs were one of the best teams and they're playing the Cincinnati Bengals, one of the worst teams. Now, you don't have to be a sports expert to know that Kansas City is likely to beat the Bengals, but that doesn't do you any good at all if you want to bet to win money. Because if you look in the newspaper, it might say if you want to bet on the Chiefs, you have to give 17 points. So that if the Chiefs won a game 30 to 20 and you gave away 17 points, you add that 17 to the Bengals score and bingo, they now win the game. So while the Chiefs won the game, the Bengals win the bet and you lose money. 
what I'm saying to you is you can do all the research you want and the Bengals have worse quarterback, worse defenders, worse running backs, everything else. The Chiefs are better. That's like saying Google is a great company. They have a better balance sheet, better products, et cetera. And Ford Motor is this dog of a company that's having problems, that's lagging on the EV or whatever things you want to know. If you know it, it's irrelevant. It has no value because likely, almost certainly, Warren Buffett knows it, the hedge funds know it, and that is built into prices. So what I'm telling you is you could say, wow, we got this commodity stuff. I need to get in. It's too late. It's already reacted. The markets have done that. Now, let me point this out. There is evidence, typically, that commodities do very poorly for a long time and then go on short bursts of big, high return. And the reason is pretty simple, that demand can increase, but the supply can't react. Because if you want to start a new copper mine today, it may take you 10 years to get the permits and everything else and get it up and running and dig it and all that stuff. And by that time, it's 10 years later, right? So it takes time to get the supply out. So what tends to happen is prices go up, up and up. And finally, people say, okay, it's now high enough that we should go start that mine. And then they start to build, and then the supply catches up. So you tend to get these periods. But like I said, if I know that, the market knows it as well. It's probably too late to react. So the only way you could benefit is if prices jump more than already expected. And so that's what's going on in there. I would ignore it, but I would say this. If you're a value investor, like most of our clients are, commodity producers are not growth companies. That's one of the real hedges in your portfolio against the run-up in commodity prices. You are likely long in your portfolio, the commodity producers. And that's part of the reason value stocks have outperformed in the last year or so now. Yeah. And I think that, again, it's not conclusive, but throughout history, value companies have historically done well during, in relative terms, during inflationary periods of time. And so that might be another way to navigate a period of inflation. There's really not strong evidence of that. It's almost uncorrelated. And you got to remember that markets anticipate this stuff. But value companies have done better in the, certainly they did dramatically better in the rising inflation we saw in the 60s and 70s. What you have to look at, though, is inflation picks up. Stocks tend to do well because companies can raise profits because inflation's picking up because demand is good, right, generally, and the economy's going. And then the interest rates start to go up, but they're going up because the real economy is going up. But then you get more inflation pressure and eventually it gets high enough, maybe above 4% or so. And then the Federal Reserve steps in and says, we can't allow this. We don't want a repeat of the 70s. And they tighten monetary policy. And that tends to hurt value companies because they tend to be more cyclical. They tend to do better when the economy is strong. And they tend to do worse when the economy is weak. Right now, we're looking at a booming economy all over the world. 
It's one and value stocks because they did poorly in the prior decade, you know, are really cheap at a time when their earnings are exploding. In fact, value companies, which typically have lower growth in earnings than growth companies, that's by definition almost. Yeah. But right this year, value companies' earnings are going faster than that of growth because they went down so much. Growth companies' earnings went down, but not that much. Value collapsed and we go back up. Growth doesn't pick up as much value does. So growth companies this year in the overall market are expected to see earnings up for, you know, 20% or something. But value stocks more like 30s and 40s. And Europe is even faster because they tend to be more of a value. They're not big technology yeah. uh, waiting in their industry. So they are expected to do better. And they're a lot cheaper than U.S. stocks. Most of the people I talk to think because valuations are so much cheaper in Europe and emerging markets and they are now coming out of recession, things are going, and the problems of the twin deficits. Most of the people think that now we're going to see a regime change, which we've seen before, but international stocks and emerging market stocks seem likely set to outperform. They outperformed in the 70s and 80s, U.S. outperformed in the 90s, international outperformed in the aughts, U.S. outperformed in the tens, and now it looks like international is now set to, and these things go in cycles and nobody knows how long they'll last. Yeah, no doubt. Larry, I, I've actually used some of your articles in the past during moments like we're in right now, when, when the country's created a significant amount of currency, right? There's concerns about the future of the dollar. People will often talk about precious metals, talk about gold, uh, and I'm starting to have plenty of those conversations. Some of the research that you've done and the research that you've shared as it pertains to kind of how gold performs as a hedge during moments of volatility or as uh, an inflation hedge, I think is fascinating. So would you spend a minute talking about kind of some of the, the research you've done around gold? So let's give people the long-term perspective first so they understand this important point. Gold is an awful investment in the long term. It is for 2,000 years provided zero real return, zero. So the story goes like this, 2,000 years or so when Jesus walked the earth, an ounce of gold bought a good suit of clothes. Today, an ounce of gold buys a good suit of clothes. So for 2,000 plus years, we've had zero return to gold. Second thing, gold tends to go through very long periods of terrible performance and very short bursts when inflation picks up and it could do well. And that gets you back to that zero return. So is gold a good inflation hedge? Most of the time, no. I will tell you, if you bought gold, for example, were unlucky enough, right at the peak of the worst worries about inflation, 1980, and you sold it 23 years later, you lost 86% of your value in real terms. Gold fell from like, I think, 800 and some dollars down to 270 
when inflation was averaging over 4% a year. So you lost almost 90% of your money in real terms. That cannot be considered by any logical person, if that can happen, to be a good inflation hedge. Now, on the other hand, gold has provided great returns when you get flights to quality and fear going on. So trade wars or oil embargoes, anything like that, you can see that. Personally, I've never owned gold. I wouldn't own it because I think you can own defensive assets that have expected real returns and not give up an expected return. And a better way to position your portfolio is to own assets that can still do well during inflation, but have a risk premium. So things like real estate, for example, uh, short-term business uh, middle market lending has right now 7 8% expected return over LIBOR. So if interest rates go up, you're going to get that premium. And inflation even helps indebted companies because the cost of their real debt goes down. So I would rather own things like that, something like a reinsurance fund. If you get inflation, then premiums go up along with everything else. And so there are other ways to address it. But if someone said to me, Larry, I want to own three or 5% gold, I could think of worse things, but I wouldn't do it. Well, I'm going to start picking off some of these questions that are showing up in the Q&A. We've still got some questions that were submitted prior to us going live here. So we've got some clients that have had liquidity events throughout the year and clients that are considering highly appreciated assets. It's been a, a spectacular 10-year run. You know, So asset prices are doing well. Markets go up more than they go down. So in light of some of these proposed changes, people are considering whether they actually occur now or later. Last week, some of the early proposals from a tax perspective indicated that the capital gains rate might even be retroactive back to April. Do you have any kind of thoughts from a historical perspective or anecdotal perspective of what the probability of a retroactive tax act would actually be in practice? Yeah, well, I, I could tell you just the risk of that. I moved a huge amount of assets out of my estate last year and early this year to beat that possibility because the risk was there. So I would urge, the first thing I would do is tell anybody who has that ability, because there's no action proposed on that. And the longer you get through this year, the better the odds and any changes in the estate tax won't take effect until uh, you know next year or the date that they pass a bill. So I would tell you the first thing I would do is look at getting assets out of your estate. And I still think it might be prudent to look at taking gains now because capital gains rates are going up regardless of what's going on. I think there are some certainties that, or as close as you get to certainties here that are going to happen. And I don't know why Trump, for example, didn't do this he had the chance to cut taxes even more for the middle class and raise more revenue by, for example, eliminating the step up in basis upon death. There's no logic to that economically. And I think that is almost certainly or a very high degree likely that's gone. Second thing, 1031 and 1035 exchanges. There's no logic for them. Why do certain businesses like real estate get a preference? That makes no sense. It's all around lobbyists. So that's almost certainly gone. And the carried interest, 
which is favoring, you know, hedge funds and multi-billionaire. You know, that makes no sense. So those things are likely to go. Now, that one doesn't affect your clients unless they happen to be a hedge fund manager. But the others might. I know I have looking at, we've talked to people about doing Roth conversions to get money out of their IRAs as one another way, gifting appreciated stock to a family charitable foundation is a great way to deal with some, if you have the ability and desire and the value to do that. I set up a charitable foundation and donating the you know, lowest basis stocks to that. So those are some of the things that are going to happen. I did not expect anything to be retroactive, but I do think certainly that you would get it effective on the date. There's even talk now it's unconstitutional to make it retroactive, but who knows? But I think that, again, I don't care who's president, who's running Congress, we're going to see massive tax increases almost certainly over the next decade because if something can't continue and deficits cannot continue, then they will end. It's only a matter of when, not if. To learn more about the theory, I did read The Deficit Myth. It's Sorry kind of, you read that book. Uh, you got to learn. Modern, there's nothing monetary and there is no theory in modern monetary theory. It's also Gene Farmers and John Cochran's, two of our leading financial economists. Don't, don't disagree with you. So I'm trying to, to answer one of the questions we got. So I'm citing that book as a, I think this is the, the right point. So what percent of US debt does China own? And I think uh, in that book, they said it was 8%. Does that sound it right? That certainly sounds reasonable. They've got trillions. Uh, we're at 28 trillion of debt. I think 21 is held by the public. The Social Security Administration you know, owns the rest. And that does, sort of doesn't count. So we look at that because we owe it to ourselves. But so public debt, 21 trillion. If you took 10%, you'd have 2 trillion. That sounds reasonable. But lots of central banks own dollar reserves. So it's far more than the impact of China. And people could decide that they're concerned about the value of the dollar and they don't want to see their reserves go down. And so it's possible that we could see a flight out of dollars. It's possible. Yeah. I, I guess keeping it kind of theoretical then, my understanding is that China's accumulated a lot of our dollars because we pay for goods in dollars and we're their largest customer in the world. Is that generally how China's accumulated the yeah, debt but, that they yeah, have? Yeah, they, they accumulate, they get the dollars, but they could sell those dollars on the marketplace. Right? Yeah. Lots of world trade happens in dollars. So China could sell goods to India and it could be denominated in dollars. It's just the way most business is done around the world. And the Chinese have tried to avoid internationalizing their local currency, although that may change. They may decide, hey, we want the renminbi or the yuan to be a global reserve currency and we'll be an economic power. That could change. Don't know. Before we shift gears or blow past the question too far, so I, I guess knowing that your crystal ball is, is always cloudy, you're thinking that a retroactive capital gains rate would likely not be applied? I think it's a possibility. 
I think yeah, I'd be foolish to ignore that, but I don't think it's more than 50% at this yeah. point. But, you know, maybe it's 30 or 40%. But I think, you know, they're going to get a bill passed and it'll maybe it's September, October would be my best guess. Excellent. So I want to talk a little bit about just kind of paradigm shifts that are maybe worth considering. Again, this time it's different. Those are infamous words of investors right before they typically make terrible decisions. But we do have a unique fact pattern where over the last 30 years, it's been a great bull market for for bonds. Interest rates have generally declined and we have great valuations globally for stocks. And so we we think about kind of the traditional battleship portfolio that might be the balanced 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. And in light of kind of the CAPE ratio, kind of a, a sensible evidence-based way of looking at what returns might look like or combined with kind of where real rates were from a bond perspective are at, what are some of the paradigm shifts that might be worth considering as an investor right now? Yeah, I wrote about this in my book, Your Complete Gut guide to a successful and secure retirement, called it the four horsemen of the retirement apocalypse, and then even added a fifth. Uh, (laughs) The first horseman was the fact that we've had a massive bull market in bonds. So bond yields are much lower than they were historically. Over the long last hundred years, let's call it bonds yielded 5%. Today, they're yielding one, one and a half, depending upon your maturity. You then look at stocks. Stocks have gotten 10%. Now, that was 7% after inflation, so 7% real. We have roughly 3% inflation. That 7% is not a coincidence. We got 7% because the average PE ratio was about 16 If you invert that and get an earnings yield, so earnings over price, you get like a bond yield, and that's the best predictor of stock returns. So the earnings yield was 7%. Somehow, magically, that happened, right? Well, today, the what's called the Cape 10 or the cyclically adjusted PE is up in the mid-30s. You invert that, you're let's just round it to 3% real, We talked about a 2% or so expected inflation. So I would expect stocks to get five, not 10. And if you're 60% of five, that's three. And 40% of one, you're another half a percent. The last 35 years or so, a 60-40 US portfolio got you over 10%. Now maybe you get four. That's a real problem. The good news is international equities are trading about their historical averages. So the Cape 10 is more like 16 or so for Europe and about, I think, 13 for emerging markets. So their expected returns are higher. And you may have this tailwind uh, pushing their prices up because of a weak dollar. So that's one way to help your portfolio is to address the lower expected returns in the U.S. by making sure you have a significant amount of international assets. The global market is 50% roughly international. My view is you should look like the global market. So about three-eighths or 35% developed, 12 to 15% emerging, and the rest U.S. because that's the consensus view of the market. 
So we have high valuations and high bond prices. That's two horsemen of the apocalypse. The third is the population is aging. So we're, we're, but we're living a lot longer. So you have to, your pool of money, which is getting lower expected returns has to last longer. So that's a problem as you plan. You may, you need a bigger pot of money, but yet your rate of returns are lower. And the last thing is as we age longer, the risks of needing long-term care, which can be very expensive, figure a hundred grand a year at least is a real problem. The risk of getting dementia goes up asymptotically, dramatically, once you pass age 75. And so lots of people are living well past that. And then you got the problem Social Security will only be able to pay out about 77% in about 12 years from today. So you got five horsemen. I think it's really critical that investors abandon their strategy of a typical 60, 40 US centric portfolio, which is about 90% or so of the American public, and look to build much more of what Ray Dalio called a Bridgewater risk parity type of portfolio. So that's based upon the following uh, principles. So as you mentioned earlier about Gene Fama, our whole investment strategy is based upon the belief that markets, while not perfectly efficient, that markets don't price everything right all the time. They're so efficient that you shouldn't try to pick stocks or time the market because the odds are great you're going to lose. My book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, we just came out with the 2020 edition last year, showed that today only about 2% of active managers are generating statistically significant outperformance on a risk-adjusted basis, even before taxes. So that means maybe 1% after. So we want to use systematic or passive vehicles. Now, if you believe that markets are highly efficient, which you should based on the evidence, then you should logically believe, it must follow, that all risky assets have to have similar risk-adjusted returns. Not similar returns, Emerging markets are riskier than U.S. Growth, large growth companies. And small companies are riskier than large companies. And value companies are riskier than growth companies. And high-yield debt is riskier than treasuries. So you should get higher expected returns, but not higher expected risk-adjusted returns. And the way you look at that is through a sharp ratio, which takes the returns and looks at volatility. Now, if you believe that all risky assets have similar risk-adjusted returns, then all portfolios should be broadly diversified across as many unique or independent sources of risk as you can identify that meet all of the criteria we established to invest. And that means that evidence has to be there's a premium that's persistent for decades, pervasive around the globe. It's implementable, survives transactions costs, and there are reasons for us to believe that there are risk reasons why that should persist or even behavioral. The typical US-centric 60-40 portfolio, the way to think about it is if I ask your listeners if you had a million dollars and 600,000 in stocks and 400,000 in bonds, how much of your risk was in stocks? They, most people, I find 95% say 60%. 
but it's wrong, it's almost 90. That's because the stocks are so much more volatile than the bonds that we build for your client's portfolio, which are very safe bonds with four to five year average maturities typically. So they have a volatility of just five, where stocks have a volatility typically of about 20 if you're a well-diversified portfolio. So if you do the math and think about risk points, 60 times 20 volatility for stocks, 1,200 risk points, bonds 40%, but only volatility of five, you got 1,400 risk points, 86% is in stocks. That's a real problem for many people. If your market beta, meaning the equity and the risk, goes the wrong way, and here's what can happen. Most people, I'll bet, would be shocked. They would never guess that we've had three periods of at least 13 years where the S&P underperformed one-month T-bills. And in each of these three periods, small in value far outperformed. In fact, in the middle 17 years, small value stocks beat the S&P by something like 800%. And by the way, each of these three periods have one thing in common. They were all preceded by great periods for large growth stock. So we had the bubble leading up in the Great Depression. The Googles of that day were RCA and Westinghouse. Then you had the nifty 50 of the Xeroxes and the Coca-Colas buy stocks, good companies, don't worry about the price. And of course, they did terrible for the next 17 years. And then we had the dot-com era. And now we have another maybe bubble brewing for U.S. stocks with these very high valuations. So this is what the bubble looked like leading up to the night. And everyone wanted to own in the year 2000 those S&P 500 great growth stocks And why do we own these lousy international and emerging market stocks? So they wait five years. This is the worst mistake that people make. They think three, five, or even 10 years are important. So then they abandon a diversified strategy. And here's what happened for the next eight years. So then they say, all right, you know, uh, Jared, you were right. I should own some small in value. I certainly should own some of that emerging markets, which beat the S&P by 20% a year for eight years. So then they switch and buy this portfolio. But then what happens, the reverse happens again, and they go back and forth and they end up bankrupt. When if you just stuck with either strategy, you would have been okay. But the best strategy is in this period, we want to sell some of that S&P 500 and rebalance, buy that small value, buy that emerging markets, so we own more of it, so that we get the good returns, we own more of it, and then we go back again. So this was as of March. This is the earnings yield based on that 10-year. This is the best estimate we have of future real expected returns. So 2.8 for the US, 5.3 for Europe, 7.2 for emerging markets. This is if we look at the current earnings yield, again, cheaper. This does not mean US is worse and emerging is better. It means people think the US is safer and is willing to pay a higher price. But it's a reason to diversify and try to make sure we own at least some. We don't know what will happen. 
And if you like owning just those S&P 500 and think three or five years is enough to abandon value stocks, for example, look at this period of roughly nine years where the S&P underperformed by 40% or more. If we go back when the first papers were published showing why people might want to invest in value stocks, they were cheaper and had higher expected returns. The ratio of the price to book for growth companies to value companies was about 2.1. That means maybe if a company had $100 in book value, the growth company would have would sell at $210 and a value company would trade at $100. So that ratio was 2.1. Today, those numbers are much cheaper. Value companies are trading like 50% or 60% cheaper. And the same thing, you can see this with PE ratios. They're much cheaper than they were historically. And we see the same thing with small stocks. So what I'm trying to tell people basically is, you can't look at the last five years or something like that. That's just noise. You have to stay disciplined. And we think you want to own a much more diversified portfolio that owns small in value, things like reinsurance, middle market lending that don't correlate with necessarily with either the stock market, the bond market, and can also protect you against interest rates rising because of inflation a much more diversified portfolio. And kind of implementing what Dalio referred to as risk parity. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Larry, we could keep going for for hours and I'm sure the questions would continue to flow. I guess as I kind of, I wanted to to start with questions rather than answers. What are the questions that that people should be answering? And then ultimately put a bow on our conversation to today so that it wasn't just ideas, but we actually guided people towards how to implement it in their own life, within their own families, in their own businesses. Again, we work with a lot of clients that that own businesses in real estate. They have concentrated positions, essentially kind of that private equity-like exposure. And so concentration creates wealth, but diversification will preserve it. So knowing what we know today, I guess my recommendation would be to start with some of the resources that our firm is, is sharing. Additionally, want to emphasize that planning. Larry talked about that functionally, we'd be better off behaving like all knowable information is currently reflected in stock prices. And if that's true, or asset prices, if that's true, planning is is greater than predictions. There, We can add a lot more sustainable value. And candidly, far too many clients don't necessarily, haven't created enough clarity around what they're trying to accomplish that we end up just doing tactical planning, minimizing taxes this year, but inadvertently creating tax expense later on. Sometimes minimizing expenses in a particular year actually competes directly against the the long-term goal of minimizing lifetime cumulative taxes. And so there's tremendous value in planning. The world around us will change, your life will change, and a a well-written financial plan will end up becoming like strategic scaffolding to enable you to create greater clarity and confidence around the decisions that you're wrestling with while also honoring and aligning with your long-term goals. And analytics, we talked about the changing tax code. So there's opportunities right now within your portfolio to look at asset location strategies, figuring out how do we begin planning just like we do on before K-1s are distributed. We do all the planning before the K-1 goes out. From a 1099 perspective, what are the planning opportunities to reduce the taxes that you're subject to? 
tax loss harvesting strategies are going to be more valuable in the future, not less. And if we look at what happened last year, last year presented us an incredible opportunity to tax loss harvest to reduce and capture those tax assets, reduce expenses, and carry them forward. Talked about stress testing portfolios and risk efficiency. And so I guess my parting words would be to just learn. A capacity and a taste for reading gives us access to whatever has already been discovered by others. And it is the key or one of the keys to already solve problems. And so the two books that I'd most recommend would be The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel and Larry's most recent book, A Successful and Secure Retirement. So currently working on a on a forward for that book that we'll be making available to clients. So Larry, again, thank you so much for taking the time to to answer questions, to highlight what we should be thinking about in this moment of uncertainty. But uh, then again, the, that's the only promise that the future affords us is the certainty of uncertainty. So Larry, thanks for our time today. And uh, listeners, thanks for uh, giving us the hour over your lunch. Hopefully you learned something and uh, be sure to, to like and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, until we do it again, be well.